Psalm 9 and the Psalter. And in the bulletin, I've printed verse 18 uh, for a key verse from which to preach. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. But I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's only uh, 20 verses. And all uh, lovely for our beholding. Psalm 9. Beginning to read with verse 1. <clears throat> and this is Auntie taking the Lord's Supper. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to you, to your name, almost High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you... Uh, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be as a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift, up, who lift me up in the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor <clears throat> shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The title of the sermon is Needy Not forgotten and the sermon is about the remembrance of the Lord and the fact that we are known by God we are invited today to a, a an intimate meal a meal of intimacy intimacy for the children in the church means uh, being close to one another feeling close to one another when I was a child I used to be, be very conscious of those people who I knew, who my family knew, my people who my parents were felt close to and they felt safe with and they felt comfortable with. And as a child, I felt comfortable 
with those people that I knew my parents were comfortable with. And uh, in a vicarious way, or a slightly indirect way, I, I had a sense of uh, confidence with these types of people. Now, when you are invited to someone's house to partake with them in a meal, uh, do you not feel much more comfortable with them? It's a good reason for us to be friendly with one another and inviting, hospitable with each other, share in each other's homes. I know as even as we think about it now, as I lift up that idea before you, for you we, we probably feel that we do too as much too little of that. We immediately comes to our mind, oh, why don't I do more? Why don't we share more? Why don't we pay the price more of, uh, of uh, intimacy, of sharing in fellowship? But we have such a meal shed before us today. And our Lord Jesus Christ has this picture in mind of, of going to other people's houses, to, sh- to sitting down and having a meal with them. When you take that kind of time out of your schedule and you actually go and sit down and spend time with people and you see their house and you see their environment and you can kind of feel it. You see the pictures that are on their walls, the way that they've decorated the house. You see how they behave in the the comfortableness of their own realm, of their own house. And in a sense, we we can luxuriate in each other's lives. And enjoy them together. Well, the Lord wants all of us to feel that kind of thing here. This is his special meal. He has invited us together. And he wants us to share. He wants us to enjoy this. He wants us to to think that all of the images and the metaphors and the senses of a common meal together, he wants us to sense that. He wants us to be imbued with that by eating together together at his meal, his special meal that has his name upon it. And when we do this, it reminds us that we are known by him and that we know him. And in that knowledge, there ought to be comfort. Uh, One of the verses, I've mentioned this before to you, but it's a verse that has haunted me ever since Susan and I were in Scotland and we were visiting a lot of the historical sites, a lot of the graveyards, or just lonely memorials that were out in the field sometimes uh, where a Covenanter family had been killed and, and their friends, because they were known, they raised up, a, they put a headstone or a memorial out in that field. I think of the field out in the moorland where uh, Richard Cameron was killed. He had a group of cavalry horsemen, and uh, um, but they, they met their demise uh, and, at the drum clog, and, uh, and it's, out, it's way out in the middle of a field. I, I remember one day we were driving there, and uh, we were going there, and we had been shown the way to get to the monument by parking about at least a quarter of a mile away and then going in uh, on a kind of a circuitous way. And Dick thought, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. I'm going to drive closer to the monument along the road and then go straight in from there. And of course, I got halfway in and I'm sinking down in these, these holes of water. In Scotland, you have the, the moorland. It often looks so lovely on the surface. But when you get on it, you realize it's, it's full of these little potholes. And uh, it's a very rough ground. 
and the, the it looks smoother because the grass is growing up and the grass is thick across the moorland, but it it's like a like the moon's like the moon's surface pockmarked with these pools of water. And they're not big pools of water, but you can go down two, three, uh, I suppose even further. But after you go down into one, two feet, you get a little bit more car- careful about where you're walking. And so uh, it took me forever to get to this monument because I chose to go the direct route. And I thought next time I'm going to go the longer way uh, and drive in that way. But uh, we were there because of uh, Richard Cameron and what he had meant to the Scottish Reformation, and his witness and his testimony to the, his great faith in the Lord. And so uh, the, the intimacy of our knowledge of him led us to that, to that place, and um, we, we remembered him, and uh, this is the way the Lord is with us. And uh, these, these monuments so often would have this verse on it, um, the righteous shall be, an everlasting remembrance, Psalm 116, or 112, I'm sorry, 112, verse 6. Uh, they shall be, the righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. The idea is that uh, that though the lives of these people have been taken from them, they are not forgotten because they were known by God. And so it's well for us to remember them today. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. And this psalm brings some of that out. Uh, it speaks in verse 6 of the, the memory of the ungodly perishing. But the very other idea is uh, verse 16. The Lord is known by his judgment he ex- executes. And while the, the wicked are destroyed, he says in verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. We can be needy in this world. We can be forgotten. We can be overlooked as far as the powers of this world would be, the newspapers and the cultural leaders. We're the last people in the world that they would be interested in interviewing. But how is it with God? God has an entirely different disposition with the living God. The most important thing is, who are my friends in Christ? Who has reached out for Christ, my beloved son, who has heeded my words that the world needs my son, that the world is bereft, that the world is naked without my son. And those who recognize their nakedness and took on the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his robes of righteousness for their clothing, they are my friends. Not the great people, the presidents, the kings and the rulers with all of their ribbons and their the ornamentation of their ceremonies. They will be forgotten, but not my people, the humble of this world. And so <clears throat> this psalm uh, trades on the idea of the friendship of God, the fellowship of God, which we celebrate today with this supper. And it invites us to think on these themes to consider them. Are we friends with God? And if we are friends with God, let us enjoy that relationship. Let us put confidence in that relationship. Let us feel good about ourselves on the count of that relationship. If God himself remembers us, if God himself thinks about us and has us in his mind, how can we then think lowly of ourselves? How can we be disdainful? of our significance. 
I see before me not many people that think of themselves as great people. But I see before me people who are faithful people and uh, who do see their need for a relationship with God. And so based on this idea, I want to speak to uh, three ideas that are uh, that uh, I would uh, lift up before you regarding this text. First of all, that we are forgotten and overlooked now. That is, the church is often forgotten and overlooked now in this world. Uh, secondly, but not forever, but not forever. And then thirdly, God's expressed declaration and promise in verse 18 that he will remember us and that he will have us in his mind. And uh, the, te- the, the text of Psalm 9 is very powerful when you, when you look at it from this perspective. Uh, first, So first of all, that we are often forgotten and overlooked now. And we can see that in verse 15. Uh, the nations have the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is ensnared in the work of His own hands. Um, uh, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and the nations and all the nations that forget uh, get the Lord. And so the, the 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 nations are caught up in this contempt of God and this animosity toward his church, so much so that they dig pits for the righteous. You think that they would just overlook us. They, you think that they would just let us go because of our impotence, because of our weakness. But no, the world looks and the world hates the idea that there are some people, some small people that yet love the Lord and are faithful unto him. And so they say, damn these people who testify to the greatness of God. Will we not wipe them out? One of the Psalms, 138, I think it is, says that the the nations look at Jerusalem and they say, let us go up and exterminate them as a people, that the name of God might be be there no longer. And so uh, we are, as a people, we are often forgotten and overlooked now. In verse, um, in verse 19, it says, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail in this enterprise of his. We go back to verse 3. Uh, David, uh, the psalmist, said, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. But you see, they were David's enemies. And they, they rose up against him, and they, they troubled him, they attacked him, they would not give him peace. And so we see in verse 9 that it says the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Why are they oppressed? Because they are, uh, they are seen as objectionable in this world. They are overlooked now. They are threatened. They are um, persecuted. But the Lord says he would be a refuge for us in this state. And as we look about this world today, we see that the Enemies of Christ will just will not. They refuse to let the righteous lead happy, positive lives in Jesus Christ. They can be a baker in Denver and uh, and want to bake cakes to the glory of God. And so when uh, some uh, uh, 
a sodomite family comes in and they want to have some gross spectacle de 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 uh, decorated on top of their cake to celebrate their sodomy. They draw back and they demur, and the people say, how can you judge me? How can you not allow for a diversity of opinions? How can you be so proud? How can you hate me? In your Christianity. So they try to ruin that person. They try to ruin his life. They try to ruin his business. They could go to a hundred other bakeries in that in that city and get what they wanted, but they, they, they're focused, they're obsessed with the Christians. They just cannot stand the little people of God standing up and testifying in faith that God is there and that God exists. So the first thing that we see is that there is a forgotten and an overlooked group of people in this world, and they are the people of God. They are Zion. They are people like ourselves. They are people who have claimed that they desperately claim that they need Jesus Christ. Now, this psalm also testifies that these people are not overlooked or not forgotten forever. We see in verse 6, we see where it says, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. You have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. The, the, the affairs of this world are contrasted with the eternality of God, with the, the present existence of the Lord. Though people rail and shake their fists and shake their hands and shake their strength at the Lord, it does not affect him at all because he's above this. He's not a creature of space and time. He's not vulnerable to their threats and their persecutions. He's the living God, full of power full of sovereignty. He's high and lifted up. And, and so the, the psalm, the idea of the psalm is that, <clears throat> that inasmuch as he is ever present and as he cannot be touched by their anger, that his cause will persevere also. But the Lord shall endure forever. Verse 7 says, He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Do you have the eyes of faith to see? You see a tumult before you. You see all kinds of battle before you. We are encircled on every side. The threatenings and the hatreds of men. Do you see the battle? Can you hear it? Can you hear the, the smell of gunpowder and the stench of death? Can you hear and smell and see that? Well, at the same time, can you see the perseverance of the mighty God of Israel? Can you see him? Can you hear him? Can you have a sense of the aroma of life unto, unto life, as it says in Philippians 2? And so uh, the Lord says that we are forgotten now, we are overlooked now, but not forever. Verse 9 says, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Not just a refuge to save them from the assaults of the present, but a refuge in the sense that we will be transported from this world of persecutions to the next world. And there will be mansions there prepared for us. And that which we miss in this world, that which the, the reward which we miss in this world, and there are certain rewards in this world. Every time we find a love in this world, every time we are allowed to marry, every time we are allowed to have a family, every time we are allowed to, to have a sense 
of that family here in this world. Every time we understand and see beauty, and we see the Lord's face, as it were, reflected in that beauty, and we see his fingerprints all over the things we make, every time we see those things in this world, the Lord uh, shows us that he is a refuge for true value and true goodness and true righteousness. A refuge, it says at the end of verse 9, in times of trouble. And those who know your name and put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So we are forgotten in this world often, but not forever. And then in verse 18, God promises us very openly and expressly, he, he promises us that... Um, that we will not be forgotten. He says, for the needy, though despite the wickedness of Psalm of verse 17, uh, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The very fact that we're needy indicates in a sense that prosperity has passed over us or has passed by us. So we are needy. We have not, we have not Given we are, have not been given over to, to under that great intelligence or prosperity that so often is welcomed by the world and falls upon the world. Some of the great magnets like Bill Gates, some of the great politicians who have been adorned with power, uh, they uh, um, they they see it and uh, and they 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 grasp it and uh, and instead we are. We are busied with things like taking care of our families. I know earlier on in my life, I was, uh, I was tempted, I think, by friends that were in the ministry, and they said, Dick, you ought to have a church of three or 4,000 people now. It's easy for you. You're a good preacher. You're friendly. You know, whatever virtues they might think I had, they said, go for it. You can have it. And uh, I would look at those opportunities and I would think, yes, but would they give me the same opportunity to preach the truth? I would, I would look at my family, my wife and my boys, and I would say, yes, I, I could, I could, I could uh, indulge myself in being uh, a famous preacher and uh, have this position, but would I have time for them? Would I have time for the love of my youth, Susan? Or what about these boys? As I looked at other pastors' families, I saw so many of them where the, where the children, especially the boys, were kind of wanted. And I thought it's probably because they, they just don't have the time with their fathers that they need. And so I constantly said, you know, I think I'd better focus on the things that I can handle. I'll look for God's blessings, but I think I'd better focus on the things that I can handle rather than these things that might make me more famous but might not prove helpful in the long run. And so I did. And God has been faithful. And um, I consider myself a, a rich man today despite, you know, maybe some relative poverty. But uh, I used to counsel my father. I saw... I saw some of the same thing in him. And so uh, when he was older and uh, weak 
and thought himself to be of not much power or uh, ability. I used to, I used to uh, uh, challenge him with this this idea. I said, "Dad, you are a rich man. <laughs> I said, uh, look at your family. Look at the way they love you. Look at the look at what God has given you and they enabled you to do in your life." And uh, I guess I got through because he would he would joke with me about that and throw it back at me then. Uh, in a day when I was a little bit depressed. And he'd say, Richard, <laughs> you are a rich man. But uh, these things have come because God was a refuge to us. Um, and um, he tells us that the needy shall not always be forgotten. Psalm 9, verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. This is God's expressed declaration and promise. The, the righteous shall be in his everlasting remembrance. Uh, this has become so dear to me as a thought uh, that God has invited me into, and I, every time we have communion, I think of this, the intimacy of the supper, the intimacy of going to the house of the Lord. And true, it's true that the elements of this uh, sacrament are somewhat meager, in their appearance. They're just a few simple things. We don't have the ornamentation of a, a full-on ceremonial service of great liturgy. No, it's simple things. But in these simple things is not the essence of life portrayed. The love of a father who would send his only begotten son into the world that we might not perish but have everlasting the flesh and the blood of the Son, the incarnation. How could God become man? But that was his love. That was his dedication. He was the one that created flesh and blood. Why could he not cavort in it? In the person of his Son. And so he's left us these things that are minimalistic in so many ways, and yet they are precious. How can we how can we take this body and not think of the great things of God? How can we drink of the cup and not think of the lifeblood that was drained from his son on behalf on our behalf? And, and it was and it was the, the blood that was drawn was not blood that was guilty, but it was blood, the blood of righteousness. It was the blood of a totally, purely, 100% perfectly righteous man, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was this man that was perfect. It was this man that was unblemished. It was this man that they hung on the cross and hurled these accusations at that he was worthy of death, that he was worthy of capital punishment. Oh, the hatred of men contrasted with the love of God. And so I would encourage you to that today to come and to eat with him, to be known, to be remembered, and to remember your God and enjoy this. We, we in, uh, in good Puritan theology, we talk about our faith being uh, experimental. And uh, when I first heard that as a young believer, I thought, what, what, what do they mean, experimental? 
And then the closest I could get to it was, was a uh, the, the word experience. Experiment sounds kind of like experiment. And that's really what the, 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 the Puritans meant by experimental. They meant something that you could actually sense, something that you could actually uh, touch in a sense and see and feel, something that would be uh, alive to your senses. And sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians, we, we, we get so caught up in the things of the truth or in notational uh, mental things uh, the, the true theology that we adore, that we forget that these things are supposed to possess our hearts and souls. They're supposed to be more to us than simply mental ideas. And that's what the Puritans meant by experimental theology. They meant theology that affected your senses. So that on a day like this, with communion, that you could, while you could think of the, the, the mental images, the mental thoughts of of Christ's atonement for you, that you could also, uh, you, that your senses would be enlivened and you would think of a dinner with God, of a meal with God, that you could taste the bread, that you could smell the cup, the, 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 the fruit of the vine, that you could smell it, the, the, the way it, it's alive. And it reminds you of the liveliness of God and the liveliness of Christ and what he really did. He really did these things. These are not just theological constructs. They're not just religious ideas. God is real. The Bible calls God the living God. Not just abstract God, the living God who can shake the earth and has done so on many occasions, like at the Red Sea or at the crucifixion of Christ where the sky darkened and the earth shook and there was an earthquake because God himself in the, in the sun, shuddered at being identified with sin and at, at coming under the wrath of God, coming under the self-malediction of God, the self-curse of God. He allowed himself to be cursed so that we might not be cursed anymore. He stood where we should stand. And the earth shook. There was an earthquake. There was great testimony made. God wants us to sense these things. He wants us to see these things. He doesn't want us to sort of come to church and come in in an emotionless way and then sit there and hear these mental thoughts and these mental images and then leave untouched by his grace. So he gives us this meal to eat and to, and to see and to touch and to smell so that we will know that we have really been at a meal with him. He wants us to know that the needy shall not always be forgotten. He wants us to hang on that. He wants us, he wants our faith to be attached to him and his great strength. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would touch our hearts today, that our that this worship might not only be mental but that you might grasp us by the heart, that you might control us. We pray, O oh Lord, that there are, there are always some that might not be converted in our midst. We pray for those uh, across the land and around the world that would be in this um, place. And we pray that being in Christian worship, that thou wouldst come down with great power and overwhelm their feeble minds and 
and enable them to see and to feel the great things of faith, the great things of thine existence. Oh God, leave us not untouched. Leave us not cold, O oh Lord. Breathe on us like thou didst breathe on the valley of the dry bones. Create in us, O oh Lord, living hearts and flesh and blood that we might live for thee and that we might uh, be sensate creatures who are responsive to thee and enjoy thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.